Hey everybody, it is 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and this is our show. We're going to wait for a couple of seconds to see if people join. But um, what I will do is give a little background. So my name is Sadayu Srinivasan, and this is Curiouser and Curiouser. We're a show that delves into all of the topics. So anything that is interesting and fascinating in our world, it could be a person, it could be a band, history, music, uh, trends, you name it. Um, the only theme is that it's fascinating um, and that I'm interested in digging into it a little bit more. I hope that you're going to find it fascinating, but you will always walk away learning something. So that's sort of the theme of this show. So given that this is a variety show, um, it's only sort of, I think it, it's not any surprise that the topic today, we're going to dig into something that is on everybody's minds, fundraising, venture capital, entrepreneurship, startups, company building, innovation, the little bit of a different lens on it, which is women. Um, in my day job, I'm a venture capitalist. Um, I have also founded a company and I worked at lots of different startups um, at the first internet wave in the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm sure a lot of you don't even know there was a first internet wave, but there was a time um, in history when we did not have the internet. Um, and when companies first started, I was fortunate enough to um, be uh, a operator in a lot of those companies. Um, and also ended up teaching about all of those topics uh, globally about entrepreneurship and innovation and venture. Um, and um, so it's no surprise that we circle back on these topics today uh, with my guest, who is a very old and dear friend of mine. She happens to be the CEO of an organization called Astia and the managing director and CEO of Astia Fund. And they basically support women owned and women run uh, and women anything businesses by providing all sorts of services. Uh, they provide a network, they do due diligence. Now they have a fund where they invest in women. I have had the pleasure of being uh, on Sharon's Global Advisory Board. I've known her for, I think, almost I think more than 15 years and we have met all over the world in San Francisco, New York, I'm reminding her and uh, India, even where I launched Intel Capital's first emerging markets fund. But let's go ahead and welcome my friend Sharon Vosmek to the show. Sharon, hello. Hi, you So good to talk to you this way. So glad to have you here. Um, and so today we are going to talk about all of these things. We're going to do a deep dive into everything that Astia does and what you do at Astia. But before we get started, uh, I want to first dig into a little bit about you. So tell me how you ended up at Astia. And I'll take a step back and say, when I met you, it's been such an interesting journey to watch this entity grow from a seedling back in uh, probably, you know, I guess it was like 2005, 2006, to what it is now, which is providing all of these amazing services to women um, in support of kind of leveling the playing field, particularly, I think, in innovative sort of startup technology and funding spaces. Um, and you've gone, I know you've done a, a bunch of different leadership roles and the mandate of Astia has expanded as you've been at the helm. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to run Astia. Sure, sure. It's a bit of a uh, circuitous route or serendipitous journey, as one might say. Um, I started my career actually uh, as an undergraduate. I studied political science and I worked for a U.S. senator in my first career and first iteration, Senator DeConcini of Arizona. And um, under him, had a great exposure to Washington, D.C. and uh, the global uh, context that I eventually moved into in graduate school, which was um, I studied women's participation in economies globally. I had an emphasis on sub-Saharan Africa uh, and really thought ultimately I would end up working in uh, somewhere on the continent, probably in Ethiopia, where I had spent my 
childhood years and really had uh, a desire to get back. But interestingly, uh, upon com- just shortly after I finished graduate school, I met the founder of Astia, Kate Muther, who was uh, at the time had just left Cisco, where she had been the chief marketing officer and um, had founded Astia, which was originally an incubator. Uh, by the time I met Kate, it was just starting to evolve from incubator to accelerator model, and I joined her first as an advisor. Um, my background in, at, in my graduate studies was really as an economist, uh, taking a look at the structural barriers to women's participation in the economy. And it was through Kate that I started to learn about venture capital and its fundamentally broken market as it relates to investing in women. So that's how I came. It was really an academic journey for me. And it was absolutely a curiosity that there could be a part of the economy that could be so fundamentally broken. And, you know, that is so interesting that you started at Cisco, because as you probably well know, Cisco was founded. It's not... um, I don't think it's widely recognized, but um, people that know, know, uh, was half founded by a woman who ended up getting ousted. And just to show you that she was no fluke, she went on to found Urban Decay, the cosmetics company, uh, which I think is fabulous. Were you going to say something? Go yeah, ahead. Just, I was going to say yeah. there's a whole documentary about it because, yeah. you know, she was very unceremoniously fired yes. for being too difficult. And, you know, yes. you should think about her, who her contemporaries were, right? Sandra Lerner, her contemporaries were Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Larry Ellison, <laughs> right? Some of the most easygoing, easy nice. to work with people. And she was CEO of Cisco and her uh, VCs found her too difficult to work with. And she, yes, and she was ousted. And I think her, it was her husband that was a co-founder, I think, Yep, he as was well CTO. They were both engineering yep. Uh, um, yep. professionals. And yeah. And, she, and she's gone on to, um, you know, found Urban Decay. And I think now she does a sanctuary for animals. I think it's like turkeys or something. I don't know. But uh, Extraordinary Woman um, makes you being proud of being called bossy as a younger person. I remember that used to be, it used to bug the crap out of me when I was growing up. I was always called bossy by everyone. They'd be like, she's so bossy. And it used to drive me bonkers. Uh, But um, so I think that's very, very interesting. Okay, but let me take a step back. You said that you grew up or had a bit of a childhood exposure. Maybe you lived in Ethiopia. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. And and my profile picture is with my dog, Addis Ababa. Uh, (laughs) all things circle back Um, my parents were a doctor and nurse team who did uh, uh, emerging healthcare. so they um, focused at the time that we lived in Ethiopia on famine relief um, in Wallo province or in Waldia, Ethiopia and um, we moved there just after I was born so from six months until I was just about to start kindergarten and we moved back to Wisconsin, where my parents were from after we lived in Ethiopia. But it was always and and to this day remains a very important part of my personal history and certainly part of my heart. And so when you came back, clearly you had, and this is so interesting because we have parallels. I had not been to Africa, but for some reason I was obsessed by Africa when I was a child. And I will never forget this. I went to, I grew up in Washington, D.C. in a predominantly uh, very white, uh, it was a city neighborhood, but that, you know, you have to remember that that was the time when there was a huge white flight out of Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Mm-hmm. And so our neighborhood, uh, all the homes that were purchased uh, were purchased by young white couples that all of a sudden could afford these rather expensive uh, homes. And Um, we ended up, which were not so expensive anymore because there was such a flight into the suburbs. This was sort of in the seventies and eighties. And, um, my public school, um, uh, there was a very tall African girl that was marched in front of us, I think her third or maybe even fourth grade. And her name was Anna Wambui. And I remember she wouldn't look at, she was very tall and thin. And they brought her in. They said, class is Anna Wambui from Kenya. And I immediately thought she's, I'm going to make her my best friend. So, um, you know, she ended up um, becoming a friend and, uh, you know, my, I just had an obsession with Africa. I did not visit there until much, much later when I was with Intel Capital. But um, so that is sort of an interesting parallel. I've always been obsessed with the place. I've never really had the chance to, in a sustained way, kind of be on the ground and work there that we've looked at companies. So what was it that drew you 
back to Africa? And why did you choose sort of the women route? Mm, well, it became really logical when you start studying uh, economies broadly the way I was. Uh, gender becomes such an important consideration for economic participation, access to wealth, ability to uh, have land tenure rights and ownership. And so it was very logical that once I study, started studying economics, um, it was very logical that I would start to see the gender difference and that it mattered uh, globally within, uh, within, any, within any context. There is no economy where women are equal to men within the home nor within the, the public economy. So you and made so, that connection very quickly. That it wasn't like just an African thing or no, a, no. it was U.S., the, Africa, the, everything. Yeah, the African part was Ethiopia truly because of uh, my connection to it as a family. And, and as I, you know, if I, if I identify comfort food, it's Ethiopian food. You know, it's, it's just such a core to me. And so in graduate school, it became very logical to choose a, an international emphasis and then uh, stu studying um, I started entrepreneurship within uh, East Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, Eritrea, and women are such vibrant entrepreneurs there. And, and so I started studying all these great projects and great uh, entrepreneurial women. And it was really powerful to learn that when women participate in economies, it's not only better for the businesses they're running, it's better, better for society, it's better for the families, it's better, better for health. And it, it was just, it has so many benefits. And at the time I was studying things like Grameen Bank and Muhammad Yunus. And what I learned very quickly was that microenterprise, even in the earlier days, was, was nearly half of the projects were led by women. And by the time I was studying Muhammad Yunus, 90% of the projects that were being uh, funded by Grameen Bank were led by women. And that was because they were a better risk. So it was really curious to me when I finished graduate school, where all through graduate school, I learned about the power of the female entrepreneur in really propping up society, propping up a family, propping up the health and education of the society, um, propping up democracy. And came to Silicon Valley to learn that at the time, uh, at the time I, I met the founder of Astia, Kate Muther, I I uh, believe it was 1.2% of venture capital was being invested into female CEOs. Today, that number is 1.2%. <laughs> it's the same number 20 years later. That was 20 uh, years ago. Yeah. yeah it is hysterical. Uh, it's a really sticky issue. I mean, it, it, to be honest, if it wasn't difficult, it would have already been solved. So it's, it's a so, difficult issue. But, you know, I was just really struck that even in the most remote areas or most difficult areas for women to participate economically, venture capital makes all of them look easy. You know, it, it's just stunning to me that uh, Silicon Valley would have such a, a bizarrely broken model. So it was fun to study it uh, along the journey that I've been with Astia. I've, I've always approached everything we do with a very academic lens so that I can learn as much as possible and not just follow in the path of others, but really learn from the path of others, the true path, not the path they represent, but really what happened. And, and certainly that's been the great reward of working at Astia. Okay. So uh, let me just ask you just straight out, you know, what's the problem? We talk about women, I mean, and I think that we kind of take a moral high ground in this country vis-a-vis -vis other countries about everything, right? Whether, mm -hmm. and a lot of times that is sort of a false pride that we have about we're better mm -hmm. about this and that. So what is the problem? Let's talk about America. What's the problem with women raising money? <laughs> well, it's not a problem with women raising money. They're actually quite good at it. It's men not inve men and women not investing in women. So it's the other way around. But it, it really has much more to do with our social uh, structures than it has anything to do with venture capital. So it, it falls particularly hard on venture capital because of VC models. But the truth is that it's a broader social uh, construct that really prevents. And, and here are some of the examples. First and foremost, capital has never flown, flowed efficiently across gender. It just doesn't. Um, men struggle to do business with women. That has a lot to do with uh, 
truly marital bonds, right? So if you think about the VC model, you're often in very intimate settings, having deep conversations. They tend to run uh, across social as well as business, right? You go out for the classic martini lunch or whatever it is. That really uh, is not well supported within uh, society where society values marriage. And so if you think about the male investor who has capital trying to have that uh, co- close conversation, even if it starts as a business conversation, having that close, intimate conversation, there are all sorts of social barriers that, that make that difficult. It creates fi- friction. Add to it race, and you get absolute friction. It grinds to a halt. Last year, 0.08% of venture capital dollars were invested into Black women, as an example. And that's because 89 to 95%, depending on how you measure it, of venture capital dollars are controlled by white men. So you can imagine that you have gender friction, you have racial friction. I would also add to it that we come out of, in in America, we come out of an industrial revolution where men were the primary breadwinners. And so that allowed for asset accumulation to be in the hands of men. And so that's a structural barrier because as you know, VC general partners have a capital commitment that they need to make to that fund, right? And and that just historically has not been capital that women necessarily had access to. So are, there are all sorts of what I'll call broader societal contexts that play out and become acute within venture. It's why at Astio, we've innovated on the venture model. We do some fundamentally, some things fundamentally different than other venture firms. And, and you alluded to them in the introduction, Um, Notably, there are three of them that I'll highlight in answer to your question. One is we do not ever require an introduction to the entrepreneur. Referrals are exactly the type of friction. Referrals tend to go along gender and racial lines and introductions um, when required can really prevent a venture firm from seeing all of the best deals. You know, the great myth is that you will see all the great best deals in Silicon Valley because your network will provide them to you. Well, that's just a fallacy. Um, and it and it creates a phenomenal amount of friction as it relates to women and people of color. The second one is how we do an initial meeting with entrepreneurs, right? We assume that that initial conversation is where we're going to really get a sense for the entrepreneur and the potential of the business. Well, there is all sorts of hidden bias in a meeting. Uh, we know that in meetings and conversations, we are best and most comfortable with people who sound and look just like ourselves. And so that needs to be removed. So we don't do an initial meeting. We actually don't meet with the entrepreneur until after we've looked at their written materials and long after we've looked at the written materials to make sure we've assessed it. And then the third and final element is by being aware that these points of friction exist within society, we measure the performance of our our sorting and sifting or screening mechanisms. We measure them at every single stage for performance across gender, age, and race. And when we see that we at the top of the funnel, we have 25% Black female CEOs, we know that within our portfolio, we better have 25% black female CEOs. Otherwise, there's something within our sorting mechanism that is creating unnecessary friction. It's just, um, to me, it's about really using data uh, as it relates to the funnel. Unlike other firms who talk about using data, but I'm not sure that they ever really apply the the data as we do, which is to critically improve um, everything, every step of our of our consideration. And so can we talk a little bit about, um, and you, you guys, ra- you guys already raised a fund. Is that correct? You, this is yeah, we're, in, we're still raising, but we've had first close. So we've, we've got 60 million in assets under management right now. And uh, that's a combination of, we had, we had done 36 million in uh, direct investing prior to launching the fund. And now we're raising the $100 million venture fund. We're, we're at 30 million along the way to that 100 million. Okay, so it's like your second fund, essentially. 
I bless you for saying that. I think it is. I mean, to have deployed 36 million in SPVs is pretty impressive, but oh, you wouldn't know first, that. Okay. But you okay. wouldn't know that when we talk to LPs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, you know, fundraising <laughs> is is tough for anybody. You know, I will tell you, I often get asked questions like things, it's so hard and people didn't like my idea. And this comes from everybody, men and women. Yeah. And I have to say, listen, I can tell you a story. This person happened to be a female entrepreneur. She's never talked about it. But I happen to know this uh, because when we were raising money for our company, I'd gone to see her and she became a huge success much later. But she was just literally having, you know, her meetings at, uh, uh, you know, uh, what was it, Pan Quotidien, that little cafe uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, it's the it's the uh, like the legacy French, fake French coffee shop to Aubon Pain, I forget, Le Pain Quotidien. She went and knocked on the doors of 700 LPs, seven zero zero, to raise a small amount of money. They've done phenomenally well, uh, female focused. And that's not, and I also know of a lot of male stories like that. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about how um, you are, you don't do referrals, you know, and referrals is sort of like pattern matching in venture capital, right? It's like sort mm-hmm. of a lazy way of vetting, like Sharon, send me mm-hmm. somebody that you know is good. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's kind of like a let you do the first level of DD. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of outsourcing that to you. And it's a very similar thing to pattern matching, but I was thinking this actually also seeps through to things like, um, do you know the studies that they've done about resumes with names that sound a certain yeah. way? And so the person sees the resume and they could have gone to all the best schools or whatever, but they see the name and they go, oh, that doesn't sound like somebody that would fit into this term. I don't know what to call it. Tribalism. Racism. Let's call it what it is. Sorry, you. It's racism. Yeah. I, no, I don't and, even know if it's, it might even be a female, right? It might be no, like yeah, a woman's no. name. Or... Names, it tends to be about, right? The first name, it's about sexism. And last name, it's about racism. Harvard's done some great research about this. And you're absolutely right. It's the same phenomena on the venture side. It's actually, what I love is that every year Harvard does its study on what VCs invest in. And they there's this very famous Heidi and Howard Roizen business case. And you're in, you're out. It's, it's like these students aren't wise enough to Google, <laughs> Google Heidi. to know that Heidi Roizen is the person. Yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. they always rank Howard Roizen as a better business than the same business under the name of Heidi Roizen. And, you know, there's nothing other than sexism that that is. Now, add to it that Harvard actually goes a step further and has uh, men and women present to real VCs the same businesses. And time and again, all other things being equal, the the female, excuse me, is 90% more likely to raise venture funding than the female. And it's just, it's, it's straight up sexism and we don't want to own it. We want to call it hidden bias and all sorts of things. It's, it's just too present and too obvious to not call it what it is. And what's great about it though, is we all have it. It's not just the purview of men. It's not just the purview, you know, it's women have it as well. And we see it all the time in, you know, women struggle to invest in women just like men do. And I, I think it's very important to call that out because I think that there is a sort of view among women that we are being oppressed and it's like, wait a minute, you know, all things equal. At the end of the day, for me, the color that I care about most is green. I'm never going to get fired for not doing a deal, but I will get fired for doing the wrong deal. But, you know, when when I think about this, I think it is something that is prevalent. It's not necessarily sort of the domain of uh, men, I think we're all sort of equally, um, you know, susceptible to these biases. I was going to bring, I was going to say it goes beyond venture capital, right? JK Rowling, um, you know, she has like that male persona. Um, she mm-hmm. might have mm-hmm. actually put out her original um, manuscript for, was it Harry Potter with a man's name? Something like that. There was some sort of, so this is not just venture capital. This is a, a cross industry societal, you know, thing. But you guys are trying to write that playing field. Uh, you mentioned that. And I, I want to make Well, sure to your I'm point, sure. the why we do it, though, is for the yeah. green. You just mentioned, I mean, you hit it, which is, you know, why to even care about this within the venture space is that you get higher performance with inclusive teams. And it's just shown time and again. And as you look at the performance of our investment activity, you look at the performance of 
uh, companies that are inclusive across the board, there's a real imperative for VCs to figure out why uh, these points of friction exist and prevent them from investing in women and people of color. So so let me ask you a question, all right? I have been nicely sequestered, as you know, all over the world and on the East Coast in the world of of VC, Mm -hmm. unless I come for my, you know, the equivalent of GP meetings over on the West Coast. You've been in the center of Silicon Valley for a while. Why... What is, I mean, what do you think is the the issue? What what do you think is the main sort of bear? Are there, are, are women not getting in the door? Where is the problem um, with the funnel? Um, so it's, to me, it's baked in the processes. Uh, you know, I've been here for 25 years and it is my observation that when you start to rely on networks and networks, become smaller and smaller as they have here. They've become more and more parochial and more and more uh, specialized and specific. What it's meant is it excludes anyone who doesn't fit the very specific phenotype. Um, And I actually see that our deal flow from other parts of the country and other parts of the world are far more representative of society at large than the deals we see from Silicon Valley. And that's just kind of been the natural tension of networks. To your point, it's not about venture capital per se. It's these larger functions of how networks work. But because VCs, we as an industry, rely on networks so heavily, both to source the deals and then more importantly, to screen the deals, right? So who's in the room to help you actually diligence the deal is that person that you trust from whatever company you started together And that tends to divide on gender and racial lines. And so, you know, what we did, we just published a paper called, um, that calls out our failures, Astia Edge, our failure to invest in black female CEOs and what we've done about it. And what we found was really important stuff for us as investors to know. And it was very startling to us when we looked at our own data. What we found is it took on average five introductions for us to get a deal fully syndicated in our portfolio. We have 64 companies in the portfolio. As we were getting the deals fully rounded out, it's about five, maybe six introductions on average for our white female CEOs. For our black female CEOs, do you want to guess how many introductions it takes to get a deal done? How many? Six zero sixty, mm-hmm. and and even then, so it's a ten x. But even then, the deals never got fully funded, and that's not about those deals. Because when you look, we have this great equalizer for the types of deals we're investing in, which is our expert SIFT process. It for twenty years has had an IRR of greater than thirty percent, and it, for twenty years it continues to churn out the best deals. And we know this because we've invested in them and we've tracked their performance. But what we also found was that they had to do it with less money, which is really curious. And, and it's, um, to me, it should be the, the curiosity of us as investors that solves this. It, it's not a pipeline issue. It's not a function of how these women stand and present themselves. It's our inability to see their potential and the, the performance of their businesses. And, and that's just curious stuff. That's social stuff. So it's really hard to fix. Um, it's also uh, very personal stuff. We, Stanford does this great research that shows that the more data we churn out about this bias, the more resistant or further entrenched VCs become in their prior practices. Well, I, I was so just, it's not I like was, you can even show them the way, right? right <laughs> I was have. just going to ask, though, like, what, where are the then the sort of the shining examples that you can put forward? Say this has done really well. This has done really well. I, and and in fact, I want to segue a little bit to hear about the successes that STS had. I know yeah. I can think of a couple. So if you can share a little bit about the companies and kind of how they engage with Astia to get where they are. Um, that would be great to hear. And then also at, at, when you're done doing that, just sort of a quick overview, because ASIA does a lot of different things since I met you way back. I think, I feel like it was at some nightclub in 2005 or 2006, uh, in San Francisco. I, I literally, I think it was some in, Intel capital thing. I ran in to uh, you there, but we've kept in touch and met in India where I was running yeah. our fund. We have met in New York. Um, you know, um, what are, um, what are sort of some of the 
um, services, because you've grown, you've grown from that time. What are some of the services that ASIA offers? And tell me about a few of your success stories. Sure. Um, so we don't provide any services. <laughs> we we only provide access to capital, uh, which is a service. Well, well uh, you do. No, but you do, right? You do the ASIA expert sift. That's a service. Um, you're doing due yeah, diligence. So what it is, is providing, so all the um, screening that ASTIA does of companies, we make fully visible to the companies. We believe in democratizing the uh, information about a company and democratizing the fundraising process. So as a company applies to us for funding, we put and what is through... That, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you, Sharon. What, yeah? is that, what does that mean? What does the company need to be since you are in the business of, of trying to help women does it have to be an all-female team? Is it a female-led team? Can it be like seven guys and one woman? What is the composition that you want? We require at least one woman in a position of equity and influence. And the way we measure that is, is she, on the equity side, is she commensurate with her male counterparts? And on the influence side, is she driving strategy or helping to drive strategy of the business? We invest in inclusive teams. She tends to be CEO or CTO or chief scientific officer, or every now and then she's so head of product. Meaningful, it's a meaningful stake. It's a meaningful role. Yep. It's not right. me and Jim both own 1% and then the rest of the six guys actually own the rest of the company. Right. No, okay. gotcha. exactly. Because we want her to see the upside of the business. Uh, okay. That's that's t for us part of our our. Uh, our phenomenal change the world play. But equally, we know that to see our investor return, she's got to be at the strategic table. So she okay. can't be the person greeting people at the door and letting them in. Um, she's really got to be uh, sitting at the table, part of the strategic uh, think and part of the big um, vision of the company. And is it any stage from concept all the way to we actually have a product and we've got a couple of um, some customer feedback and we've got a letter of intent or whatever? Is is the sage does the sage Be matter to you because we have multiple investment vehicles we can consider any stage so okay. we have direct investment activity and that can be truly any stage the venture fund astia fund one is a the 100 million dollar fund is a series a b vehicle and the five investments that we've completed to date are right in that category they're either a or b but the the point we like to invest in for the fund is right at that inflection point that growth where the the that we're funding that that market that has already been de-risked to some degree, and we're we're catching the customer uptick. Um, and then we also have Astia Edge, which is a seed stage fund specifically for Black and Latina CEOs, and that's recognizing that the market is even more brutal to those entrepreneurs. So we we do some great seed stage investing, and then our our intention and, and two of the CEOs from Asti Edge have gone on to raise capital from Astia Fund. So our goal is to stay along the journey with them. So you have basically, let's say, a stage agnostic set of vehicles to invest in companies. The requirement is that they have a woman in a significant position, uh, a significant stakeholder, let's say, um, and, and maybe a meaningful position in, in the company. Um, and then what do you provide after that? Because I know, you know, yeah. uh, having been on your global advisory board at one point and also helping with going through some of these companies, there's a lot of plans that I've seen that are sort of all stages, all over the place, all different <laughs> kinds of um, verticals um, and very interesting things, right? And there's a lot of them. You guys clearly are seeing a lot of traffic. Yes. Um, so, we looked at, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, last year we looked at 2.3 billion in opportunity. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, so the reason I was saying we don't provide services is because what we do provide is access. So what we know, that fundamental tension in society that men and women don't do business together is really what we're up against. So Astia has a global community of people like you, sorry, 5,000 of you with great experience, half men, half women. And what we're doing is doing a very bespoke connecting of that community yeah. with the companies that apply to Astia. So if you are a company, um, we're looking at a hydro uh, energy company right now. So it's uh, a very specific high um, 
and hugely capital intensive type of business, but doing some really cool stuff to bring hydropower onto the grid and uh, definitely an exciting innovation. What we do is we reach out to our community of advisors to help us not only assess that company for potential investment, but to provide really critical feedback and guidance to that company if you as an advisor have that specific domain right. expertise, right. sector expe expertise. So there are a lot of organizations out there that will broadly mentor a company. We don't do that. We do very bespoke advisor connections. And really, at the end of the day, it's about providing those connections across gender, connections across geography, connections even across sector and stage that can really benefit an entrepreneur. And what was really cool is that entrepreneur we're diligencing right now, we were um, meeting with her today. What I loved to hear was at the very beginning of the meeting, she said, I want to take just a moment to really acknowledge Astia's process. She said, we've been fundraising for a while. And, and, and it's a company that obviously, as I said, has been meeting with a lot of investors because it's very capital intensive. She said, we were the most transparent investors that she's met with. We had an abundantly clear process and we had a uh, just a wealth of knowledge and information that was provided to her all along the way in our consideration of the investment. And that's what we want to be, that real value add specific to the business for where it is and the market it's pursuing. And so talk to me about the successes. I know that you've had yeah. some big names come out of Astia over the years. Yeah. Um, I will let you toot your own horn. Uh, I can think of one company, but... Um, yeah. Well, I, I like to highlight that, you know, this this uh, friction in the market isn't just uh, with the VC. So media really struggles to cover these stories as well. So I'm really grateful that you're giving me the chance to talk about uh, some of our entrepreneurs. I, I'm going to tell you about one of our successes and then tell you about one of our most recent investments. Okay. So one of our successes that is notable is Envision medical. Envision, okay. it's the letter N and then Vision, was acquired by Boston Scientific for $250 million. What I love about the company is Serbi Sarna, their CEO, was a 30 under 30 entrepreneur. She was fierce. She was brilliant. She had graduated from Berkeley and she, started a, medical, and she started a medical device company where she designed a device that was for diagnosing cervical cancer. Wow. Uh, excuse me, Ovarian cancer, excuse me, not cervical, ovarian cancer. And the reason that this matters is that ovarian cancer prior to her technology was being diagnosed at stages three and four of the cancer, which made it hugely deadly. And the reason for this was that there hadn't been uh, a technical uh, uh, a solution for finding the cells at the earlier stages because you had to navigate up the fallopian tubes and harvest um, cells to catch them at the stage one and stage two, all the way up uh, within the fallopian tubes. What Serbi designed and developed and sold ultimately to Boston Scientific was an elegant solution that was uh, used alongside the pap smear. So it was not considered hugely invasive. Uh, it could be done with enough regularity and with enough comfort that um, hugely efficacious and, and excited by the doctors uh, who used it. That exit for us was a... Uh, it was our first investment when we started investing. And when we exited, we were still the third largest investor in the company. And our multiple on that was a 12X. So it was really great uh, return that for our great. investors. Congratulations. And before you move on to what you just tell me about, you also had some, before you had the fund, you also had some notable companies go through Astia. Can mm -hmm. you name some of those that have gone ahead and they actually have gotten press? So I'll see if you name them. If you don't, then I will name them. <laughs> oh, I don't know if many of them got pressed. So we, we had essentially, um, uh, we were the, most of the companies that started Astia start with different names. But um, so Boku had an IPO and it was Paymo when it started here in Silicon Valley. I don't know. Which one are you thinking of? I thought that didn't LearnVest go through you guys also? At yes, some LearnVest went through us. Yep. yep. Yeah. Because it, you know, New York and it was kind of in the financial space. Uh, so you uh, heard yeah. about it a little bit more, yeah. I think, in New York. Well, the, the bigger one is Medallia was finally ranked oh, a unicorn right. and that, that they went were public. Survey, right? Yeah. They're a survey company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Customer satisfaction. Yeah, Medallia. And now they're LPs in our fund, which is great. And um, yeah, so we've had, yeah, some great successes along the way. Uh, 
what's really curious is when people hear that we invest in companies that include women, they always assume that they're, they're consumer facing and they're actually not. One of the ones I was going to highlight, one of the most recent ones that we just did from the fund is Pallet Shelter, P-A-L-L-E-T. And she was just on NPR uh, yesterday talking about their solution that um, they have a number of locations all across the country, but Los Angeles is hugely successful. And this is housing for homelessness, dignified housing for homelessness. Not exactly what most VCs would think of as a venture play, but this absolutely is. And she has an elegant, uh, dignified housing solution um, that provides services alongside the, the shelters that she manufactures. She doesn't do the services piece that's done by local municipalities and their partner agencies. But these shelters, the doors have locks and the windows have locks. And um, and the, the solution provides a transition from living on the streets in tents to what ultimately uh, becomes people moving off the streets into homes. And, you know, you live in these structures for six to nine months and then you transition to homes. And it's just a phenomenal real world solution that I'm, I'm in love with all day long. Well, you know, I think it's sort of interesting because there used to be, even like a decade ago, this sort of idea that um, the things that traditional venture capitalists like myself would invest in was, um, you know, something high growth. I need to see a huge multiple. But then you go back and you look over the last couple of decades and VCs are investing in things like scooters and juice machines. And now ad tech is something huge. They used to do, um, you know, green tech, which is really project finance. It's really not venture capital. Everybody got burned on that. I think we figured that out pretty quickly and ran away from it. But so I, I often think that, you know, when people talk about things that are traditional venture, that it really almost doesn't matter because in, for a bunch of quote unquote smart people, I think venture traditional venture capital investors think like a herd, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen this trend of like Hollywood movies, like you'll notice there'll be one volcano movie and then there'll be like four um, or there'll be like one shark movie and then they're like seven. And that's because consultants go and figure this out. And so it's sort of like the same thing in VC. So I don't really put much, I always say there are no rules. And I remember when I built my company, when I left VC and I started my company, I built it completely remotely. I was sitting alone in New York. I had my tech team sitting in India. I had my UX guys in the Pacific Northwest. Everybody was constantly saying, you can never build a company remotely. We will never invest in anything unless it's in our backyard. Well, I think COVID basically proved all of that wrong. I knew that to be wrong as an investor. I had access to capital, so I didn't really care what people thought and said. So I did what I knew was going to work for me. But I think, again, when you look at something like COVID, like it was like the best year. I think 2020 was like a banner year for venture capitalists. So I always say, don't listen to anybody. I mean, you <laughs> always know. It's true, right? As soon yeah. as you were successful, you've all of a sudden changed the paradigm. Okay. Yeah. So we've talked about successful things. And I also want to remind you before we hang up to please put Astia's information in your bio so that when people are listening to this, they can find it. Um, or if there's a contact um, information, I know that it'll be all over your website, but let's also just make sure that it's easy to find here. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you um, over your many years of learning, um, and it's really been so interesting and such a joy to watch. And you know, like I'm a huge fan and supporter of yours. <laughs> Tell me, what are the biggest mistakes that you are seeing female founders making? Um, like if there is something that you can generalize and say, oh, I see that all the time and I wish they wouldn't do that. Are there a couple of things that you can throw out that would be helpful for anybody? <laughs> No, but I'll go there for investors and what they're making mistakes on. <laughs> so is there any, so, but you can't come up with anything that a female entrepreneur or somebody, it doesn't well, have to be female, I, an entrepreneur, I what can say, they do? Um, if you ask me entrepreneur, entrepreneurs broadly, I can answer yeah. it. I think yeah, yeah. Well, there's a myth that women make mistakes that somehow are gendered. And I just don't see that. I What I do see is that you know, entrepreneurs are are often learning business at the same time as they're learning uh, their their innovation, whatever their innovation is. Um, so, you know, learning can sometimes lead to mistakes. So, I, I've I've seen some mistakes. I do, 
I do always hesitate, though, to highlight mistakes rather than strengths. It is my bias. Well, no, this you? is really, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily mean female, but we are sort of talking about it in conjunction with female. So that's why I say that, not that yeah. men are yeah. making mistakes. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pick one. So, yeah. for example, Astia asks for an executive summary, and we are very clear that we need a written. Two page, one to two page executive summary. We're, we're abundantly clear that that's a requirement for funding. And then we will receive all sorts of pushback from entrepreneurs that, okay, they don't have one. They don't, they're going to send us a deck instead. And what's really important for entrepreneurs to know is we have a really good reason for asking for the executive summary. We have an abundance of research that shows that there's all sorts of bias within the deck. As an example, Y Combinator has its deck style. 500 Startups has its deck style. And if you are an entrepreneur that hasn't gone through Y Combinator or hasn't gone through 500 Startups, VCs will actually ding you for not having the right information in your deck or it doesn't have the right look and feel or or lots of reasons. There'll be a photo of you in the deck. Um, We ask for the exec summary and it's worth spending time making it a really good and thoughtful executive summary because we've learned that when you evaluate businesses on the written word rather than a presentation or rather than a photo and rather than a gut hunch, you can actually greatly reduce bias. And this is to the benefit of the entrepreneur, male or female. Um, we can better assess the business rather than assessing just you yeah. uh, in that written word. So a mistake is doubting that we don't have a logic for that process. Um, the logic is there and you can read about it on our website, but more importantly, it's, it's our process. So honoring that process is probably a good idea as an entrepreneur. And I think that entrepreneurs think that by being scrappy, they can go around corners, they can do things differently, and it's okay because they're going outside the box and breaking the rules. And I think some rules, in our case, are good ones because they do help us be better investors. Yeah. And I, I will zoom out on your comment and say, that's just, that's just a problem in general. Right. I mean, I would routinely have people send me 50 page decks and I'm like, buddy, I don't have time to read a five page deck. So you need to send me something that I can quickly tell what the idea is about that. I'm excited about it. Um, and that we, you, your goal is to get a meeting with me. Um, and the way that you're going to do that is create a deck. Well, it's really hard to do that. I get it. By the way, this is very true, not just of first-time founders, scientists, technical folk. I mean, you know, I was just in the government for the past couple of years as senior advisor to all of our national laboratories and our agencies. And I was working with researchers and scientists and technical folk. And um, they all want to spend, you know, half a day explaining to me a concept. And I'm like, nobody's going to sit with you. Uh, We need to have something short. And it's, by the way, that's an exercise in and out. I can tell you because I had to go through it myself. It's very painful to try to distill everything down into its essence and have like the equivalent of an elevator pitch that you you can verbalize if you catch me in an elevator, the equivalent of a elevator pitch on paper, a couple of sentences, so you don't overwhelm somebody whose inbox is already full. And then having a proper deck that's no more than 12 slides, it gets to the point. It can be very difficult when you're talking about, you know, in pharma or you know, in highly technical things, but everybody has that kind of bias that they think that their baby is unique and they need to give you a 50 page check. So that's like a very sort of common uh, sort of problem. And I think that what you're seeing is actually probably even generational. Like I don't need to do a summary because I haven't heard that yet. Um, But I also haven't been like investing in the last four or five years. So um, I haven't had the sort of pushback on some reason things, but I suspect that's also something that might be a little bit generational because I don't know if you heard, but uh, in fact, a woman, uh, it was just announced, raised a bunch of money for a crypto fund. Um, and part of it is, you know, there it's, it's so much of uh, everything in Web3 is sort of anonymous and, uh, you know, because of the blockchain and, and there are so many hidden founders. So there's very little you can actually find. In the, but that's something that now VCs are adopting, right? Because they're like, well, we want to get into this. And this is part of that culture. So things change. um, But uh, I think the problem that you talk about is not something that's sort of unique to first time founders or women. And it's sort of all over the board. So I appreciate that. But that is a great one. Um, Let me also sort of ask you, um, oh, and it's 8.50. I know you have to go at nine, but I, I want to get as much of you as I can. Um, I, you know, I was going to start out this show by saying, Sharon, how are you? But I was like, mm, I talked to you last night. I know how you're doing. <laughs> and so let me thank you for taking the time 
to be with us today. Um, and we should revisit this and maybe do a longer one and have other folks from Estia show up, maybe some companies uh, as well. Tell me what are some of the greatest learnings? What are some pieces of wisdom that you can impart to somebody that is maybe a little uh, green in terms of raising money? They may be a very proficient scientist, um, uh, like your Envision entrepreneur, or it might be somebody that is maybe very green. What are like some good learnings that you can throw out there for folks to help them kind of, um, you know, uh, increase their chances of being seen besides applying to Astia? Um, well, I do think that resilience uh, is often underrated. I, I think we use the word without knowing what it really means. Um, but I know that as I look back on our portfolio of 64 companies, it's the rare company that we invest in on the first uh, pass through. Um, it's often that entrepreneur that we initially say, mm, not yet, but here's the feedback. Go address some of these questions or come back with better answers or come back with more answers or come back and keep us up to date. Uh, it's that entrepreneur that we tend to invest in. And, and that's as much about the fact that this is a relationship business and we're going to be investing in this company in a way that requires a really strong relationship. And that takes time. And it, it, there really aren't any shortcuts to relationship building. Uh, so resilience isn't just resilience, oh, I'm thick skinned, I can make it. But it's resilience and commitment to relationship development through the no's to get to the yes, or through what can feel like a no to the eventual yes. And, you know, I'm experiencing it with our own fundraising. We've had LPs that on the first meeting, they absolutely weren't ever going to do a series A, B fund, whatever it is. And then, you know, 10 meetings later, when they continue to hear from us and continue to hear our commitment to the space and our performance within our investment thesis, it's then that they get interested and, and join us as partners. So I, I feel it more personally now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for the entrepreneurs we've invested in, uh, I just, I think they've gotten it really right, that they are resilient and they stay in the relationship beautifully. And the relationship develops all along that journey and and, and really finds its footing um, through that resilience. Um, yes, I think it is. I think what you're talking about also is persistence of just not giving up. Um, there's a beautiful story. Sorry, it's not about a woman. Um, I really love this story about Howard Schultz. It's actually brought tears to my eyes, and that's why I share it. Um, I don't know if you know the story of Starbucks where, you know, he'd gone to Italy and finally got it in his head that he wanted to start this coffee company. And here's this, you know, and that was a time when you would go to the bodega, at least in New York City, and pay $1.50 for your cardboard tasting coffee. Um, and he was like, I'm going to start a coffee shop. So he started working on this um, concept um, at a time when nobody would think about paying more than $2 for a cup of coffee. And he did this. Um, he was married and his wife got pregnant and, um, you know, they were struggling to make this work. And his father-in-law showed up and uh, took him for a walk on the beach, asked him how the business was going. And of course, Howard Schultz was like, it's great. You know, I can just feel that there's going to be a big breakthrough in this coffee idea. You got to think about how insane this sounded. I personally probably would have never invested in this kind of company, right? So to, to say that I'm still working on it and his father-in-law's listening to him and looks at him and says, Howard, with great respect, I ask you to go get a job because you're married to my daughter and she's pregnant now and you need to support a family. And with great respect for your dream and what you're trying to accomplish, please go get a real job. I actually had tears in my eyes when I was reading this interview. And he said that it shook him so badly that he went home and he cried. And he went to his wife and apologized to her for putting her through this horrible, you know, quote unquote, entrepreneurial journey and that he was going to give up this idea and, um, you know, go get a real job like selling insurance. And it was she that said, no, we're going to give this a little bit more time and we'll see what happened. You've already sunk in this time. And in that time, they started to see some traction and Starbucks, um, you know, the rest is history. And so when I think well, about but that, I do have to clarify, you you yeah. know he bought Starbucks. He didn't yeah. start it. <laughs> okay, yeah. I just want to make yeah. sure. And that his his attorney was 
it's really helpful when your attorney is Bill Gates Sr. <laughs> yeah, I do adore, by the way, I adore Howard Schultz for lots of things. I just always have to uh, remind folks that the, the entrepreneurial journey that was his was, was acquirer of, of the entity. <laughs> yeah, but I think, but yeah. I think the point is that persistence really is something that you have to have. You cannot be, I told you the story of the woman that went to 700 LPs. Um, I can tell you that when I was raising money, I had it very easy because I was a known quantity and I went to 10 folks and I raised, I had eight people that wanted to put money into my company and I chosen a handful for very particular reasons. I wanted them to invest in my company. I was teaching at the University of Edinburgh. I had taught a class and I was sitting with the dean. And this is when I was raising money for the concept of the company, right? And I come from a venture background. So very clear sort of what the game is, what's going to... And I suddenly get a email from one of my anchor investors who I desperately wanted saying, um, Sadiu, my lawyers looked over the term sheet that you sent us, and it basically looks like it's saying, give me money and I won't shoot you. So I can't like really invest in this company. That term and I was like, oh my God. And I started panicking. I'm sitting here with the dean, with somebody else from private equity in Scotland. I didn't have a phone with me. I had my iPad. I literally, I, I remember what I was wearing. Like I was wearing a pearl necklace and a dark purple dress. I said, excuse me. And I went to the bathroom and I was like, God, I hope this restaurant has Wi-Fi. And I literally locked myself in the bathroom as people were knocking over the next 30 minutes, figured out how to download some app that would allow me to make telephone calls. This was like back in 2013. Felt like I'd built a phone out of two sticks and some rubber bands and literally called my lawyer and I said, you need to call me back right now. I don't know what time it was in the United States. And I said, you need to change the term sheet. I was like, change the term sheet. And I had, you know, I had used a term sheet that I could quickly change and not alienate the other investor. You need to change a term sheet. And I immediately sent my investor note and said, listen, we really need you to be on board. And would this be acceptable? And he didn't respond. And I said, it would mean so much. Uh, I really don't want to lose you as an investor. And would this be something that would be acceptable? And I think I can get the other investors to fall in line if you're okay with this. And I got a uh, email back uh, a couple of hours. I mean, I went back, like literally my legs shaking to this lunch going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, and he came back and said, this is fine. We're good with this. And I guess what my point is, is, you know, that's not the story of going to 700 LPs, but it is not giving up because someone said no and not being embarrassed and being resourceful and going, let me resolve this quickly. And that's just stuff that you need to have as an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Those are the kind of entrepreneurs I want to invest in. It's, as you said, a relationship business. It's a people business. We want to focus on people that we know are going to be good stewards of capital. And as you've mentioned, women are that. I think women are also incredibly resourceful. We think on our feet. So I feel like all of the elements are there and it's now, it's very much that persistence of sticking with it, not losing heart. If one door slams in your face, keep going um, because somebody, and I think the world, I love to say that the world is changing, but then as you said you know, earlier, it's a little bit disheartening when you think about the fact that there's a lot of talk about women. Uh, and I've had people ask me this at conferences like, Sadiu, you I don't see more women partners. I don't see more capital going to women. What's the problem? And I've often said a lot of this stuff is Astia's kind of, Astia Springboard, there are a couple of organizations that actually put their money where their mouth is. I see a lot of um, uh, lip service that's given to this. Um, and so that's a bit frustrating to see. Uh, and I think, one of the things that it is very, very important is to, for entrepreneurs, people that are thinking about this route to keep their head up and to sort of stay persistent. So I, I very much appreciate the resilience comment. Um, and I think that goes for both men and women. But um, we're at 9.01. I hope to take some callers. But Sharon, I want to, are there some last 
sort of pieces of advice, anything you want to share at the end of this? Well, I guess what I'll share is for anyone who's listening, I happen to have a job I actually really love. Um, I think a lot of people, especially post-COVID, are looking for their thing that makes them feel the way I get to feel on a daily basis. And I just share that because I didn't know that this kind of work existed when I started on my journey, but I kept my um, ears open. As I said, I approached Astia very academically and I learned a lot along the way. And now I get to apply all of those learnings. And, you know, my, my job, quite honestly, is continuous learning. I'm always learning about the new technologies for the new innovations um, led by really interesting people that I get to learn about. And now I'm in a position where I get to really choose the team around me. I have a phenomenal team at Astia. They're all a joy to work with. Our partners who have invested in us in the fund are some of the best institutions and individuals around the globe. Our anchor investor is MasterCard and they're true partner on this journey. And then as you look at kind of the, the folks I get to interact with on a regular basis, it's real, really people that are interested in changing the world and making it look more like the society that we all uh, live within. Um, you know, I invest in companies that include women in a position of equity and influence uh, in an industry where only 1.2% of the capital does so. So those who have invested alongside me are just a different type of investor, leading a bit with their values and leading a bit with their commitment to finding the best innovation wherever it is. Uh, not requiring that it be within our immediate reach, but actually willing, a willing, showing a willingness to go and find it where it is. That's a little bit of a soapbox, but I do like to say that I really love my work. And if anyone wants to learn more about Astia and what we're doing, astia.org is there. And I always respond to emails. I'm Sharon at astia.org. And I respond to texts as well. So feel free to reach out. Put that in your bio as I've been uh, haranguing you to do that. Uh, in your call-in bio, please. Um, and then really quickly, I want to, since you, I can't resist asking this. Um, well, first of all, ASEAN is global, right? So you do invest in companies globally. We do. We look at deals. And anywhere. health companies. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then second, I can't resist in asking you this because you've been very open. Um, have there been times in your journey where it's been discouraging, where you, I know what the answer to that question is, but where you've just been like, why am I even, yeah. and what have you done to get over that? Yeah. What have you done to get so over I that? So I never, um, I, I never wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing. I completely and absolutely believe in this work. Having said that, I get discouraged, I was discouraged this morning because I showed up at a conference that was just reinforcing all of the great myths of Silicon Valley. And I think that that's heartbreaking because I've been doing this work long enough that I would hope that some of the key learnings from our work or the work of others like us would have baked into our industry better than it has. So sure, it gets challenging, but like I said, I've surrounded myself with some, with some amazing people who uh, feed me and lift me up daily. So it, it's, to me, it all comes out in the wash, as they say. And do you have like specific words of wisdom for an entrepreneur that because part of that journey, it is very lonely. I was a sole founder. Uh, it can be very depressing. Uh, but if you have any words of wisdom or anything that you've seen is helpful or that has made people successful, I'd love to hear well, because you mentioned that you were a sole founder, hopefully you felt your community around you. I was around you. You were never too, too very alone. But I would, I would remind that for all entrepreneurs that the individual does not scale. So surrounding yourself with people who can back you up and believe in you for those dark moments when, when the entrepreneurial journey gets really hard. Um, I'm sure that, that, uh, there are a lot of other lessons I could share, but since you mentioned that one, sorry, I'll, I'll reinforce that you were you were never alone, um, and I hope that you know that there were those of us around you cheering you on and always with you on that, and hopefully other entrepreneurs build out their same community around them because it's really needed. You need people around you as you grow that business. Yeah, no one does it alone, no one. Um, and so I think that is great advice to sort of end on. Um, it is 9.06. I know you had a hard stop at nine and I hope to take callers, but we will do this at a time when 
you guys are not, I know you've got a couple of your key folks out uh, and have some serious things happening. Gotta hate this COVID virus thing. But um, I thank you so much. This has been so insightful. I think it's gonna be really helpful for folks that are listening in. Um, for the billionth time, I'm going to tell you to please put all your information in your call-in bio so people can find you. And um, we will definitely do this again. And Sharon, thank you so much. So it's um, Sharon Vosmek, who is the CEO of Astia and also the CEO and Managing Director of the Astia Fund that invests in uh businesses um, and concepts. They are stage agnostic and sector agnostic that have a woman in a um, uh, meaningful role uh, as a stakeholder principal. Um, Thank you again, Sharon, for joining us. Um, This was really wonderful. And my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, We will be back next week, uh, Wednesday at 8 p.m., Uh, We've got a surprise for next week. I'm going to announce a little bit later. The week after that, uh, we're going to be speaking to Ravi Venkatesh, the former CEO of Microsoft, uh, also on the board of Hitachi, the Rockefeller Foundation. He is doing some work in climate change now and entrepreneurship. So he will join us uh, in a week from next Wednesday. But next Wednesday, we're going to have a very special show, which we will announce later has nothing to do with venture um, and everything to do with music in the 70s. And with that, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. We have a great evening. Bye-bye.